Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Pete Newell. He is the CEO of BMNT, a founder of Hacking for Defense, and a decorated colonel who's led the Army's rapid equipping force before his retirement in 2013. Pete, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Can you reflect on some of your time in the Army's rapid equipping force? You know, What were you able to achieve there, looking back? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, a number of times I've done this interview, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that, other than you know, what, what projects you actually do. Yeah, most significantly, I, I think I took an organization that I think was beautifully designed by Bruce Jetty when he first set it up, that eventually uh, ran off its rails and, and quite frankly, it was was very focused on things and products that it was throwing into the, the field, but had lost kind of the heart of go find new problems and find new technologies and build new teams to solve them. So I think most significantly from my three-year period at REF, we changed the direction of that paradigm for them. It got them to the point where the rapid equipping force were the experts in finding new problems and articulating them in a manner that other people could understand them and then building teams to work on them and actually delivering not just feasible solutions, but ones that were viable and, and would actually solve the problem that the end user uh, was faced with. You know, at the end of three years, we took a $160 million budget and and essentially invested, I think, probably $1.5 billion in other organizations' money in deploying solutions downrange. Uh, and I think that, you know, that coupled with the fact that uh, REST budget, you know, 2012-2013 grew by about 40%, we were testaments that we were we were actually doing the right thing for folks. Yeah, I see that kind of trend happening a lot more now with the innovation hubs where they have a small budget, but they're able to actually amplify their effect by bringing in partners from different program offices and PEOs from around the service. I believe you said that the Rapid Equipping Force, at least when you were working there, it reported straight to senior leadership. And then you kind of said there was a little bit of a demise to the Rapid Equipping Force potentially. I think it reports to PEO Soldier now. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, has the rapid equipping force been normalized a little bit or, you know, what was the importance of kind of being outside the regular chain at that time to, to your uh, success? You said you were able to transition 170 programs and build out some of that investment capability. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a misperception about being, you know, outside the chain of command. Um, I clearly had a chain of command and then there was a really significant chain of influence, which included virtually every general officer in the Army. I think not being bound to a rigorous, onerous, slowly plotting decision cycle freed ref up to actually turn up an OODA loop, not as fast, but close to as fast as our protagonists were on the battlefields. And I think simply by stripping away 
all of the extra compliance and and other things that that people use for big programs to make sure that they, you know they commit on time and on budget over ten years allow Ref to really focus on getting the first best fastest solution they possibly could onto the battlefield in an adequate manner so that they could learn from it and then influence other programs. You know, despite the fact that I was outside the chain of command, you know, I reported to the vice chief of staff of the Army when I first started at Ref. By the time I left, that had degraded to a couple of two-star generals, one in the Army G3 and one in the acquisition um, at, at ASALT. So as you can see, the, the demise really is the level of influence your directors have in terms of actually getting things done. So I think, you know, from my stand, I, I enjoyed a lot of freedom because by the time that happened, I had a very well-built machine and a great reputation and really were doing some great work. You know, fortunately, the guy who followed me had to start all over with his version of it. I, I think the the challenge with Ref at the time is is they were drawing the Army staff down and trying to figure out what to do with all these extra organizations they built. They really couldn't figure out where it belonged because Ref belonged to three separate organizations. Part of it was ASALT, part of it was the Army G3, part of it was TRADOC. And had they just left well enough alone and, and said, you know, we could keep it that way, then it probably would have been fine. But they decided to force it into something that, that met with the structure that was out there. And I think, quite frankly, that they just so diluted what they were doing that they, I'll say they lost the mojo, but it really, it stripped them of their ability to do, you know, that, that really heavy and tough work. I think the other thing that, that really got to them is, is REF's budget shrank. REF was still saddled with the sustainment of a host of things in theater in, in Afghanistan that were eating its budget, were left which left less money for doing new things. You were bringing up there that sometimes a lot of the regular process that goes with these multi-billion, 10-year-long programs, they kind of get brought into into other parts of the system that might not need it. And you had a nice article where you were talking about self-sabotaging systems. And, you know, it seems from a lot of our point of view that you know, there, there's all these processes, each one of them makes sense on its own. But then when you take the aggregate of them all, it seems overwhelming and can stifle a lot of things. So what does entrepreneurship look like in a self-sabotaging system, whether that's a commercial large enterprise or government? I would say in a self-sabotaging system, there is no entrepreneurship. And that's the problem is, and I think, DOD is, is challenged to some extent, and I think the Army in particular, because they don't, the concept of entrepreneurs, I think, is understood, but nobody understands how to breed them, nor how to, how do you grow them into uh, the super entrepreneurs, or, or you know, how do you to feed the system with people who think like that? Because, you know, quite frankly, an entrepreneur is somebody who who understands the system that they're in. Well enough that they can actually manipulate it or bend it to the will to get something done. You know, the classic Silicon Valley version of that is um, there are inventors and there are people with ideas and scientists and stuff. And very few of those are entrepreneurs. And it's not until an inventor with an idea or something else bumps into an entrepreneur who is so passionately excited about solving a problem with that tech that you can actually form a business. 
and then turn it into a company and then scale that company. But to think about how that's applied inside the military, when you find somebody who's super passionate about a problem, generally they eventually hit a glass ceiling when they say, well, that's somebody else's issue. And, you know, you're not going to carry that forward. And, you know, there's no personal mobility that says, you know, one day I'm a, an infantry platoon leader and the next day I think I have an answer to uh, individual ISR systems. And, and I'm going to run with this for the next two years and build a program or product or whatever else and hand it off and scale it. You can't do it. I think the same thing applies whether you're talking to contracting officers or finance folks or there are contracting officers who I would consider are entrepreneurs. They have entrepreneurial behaviors because they have figured out how to find the right contracts and align them at getting real work done in a much faster pace than most others do. And they're willing to take the risk to do that. And then there's the other 99% that are completely risk adverse and not incented to do things like that. So it's not just enough to build entrepreneurs who, who have bright ideas that want to you know, solve a problem. It's the entire system has to be loaded with people who are experts at what they do, who know how to apply an entrepreneurial solution to help make something move forward. And hopefully all that made sense. But that's the real gap that, that most of these organizations are. They just know, I, I can't go to class in the military to learn about entrepreneurship, much less get experience actually doing it, unless it's completely by accident or it's in a corner someplace. And unfortunately, the folks that do that on their own and are good at it end up leaving the service and going to work for some civilian company. Yeah, I think that what you said there is interesting on the technical expertise. I kind of have this theory, essentially, that when you rely on these processes, you get away from you know, people that actually know what the value of the object is. And so they kind of fall back on cost data. They fall back on these processes. Did you meet those processes? And you were kind of bringing up what I think of as a little distinction between technology push and requirements pull, where you have these innovators, they come up with a great idea, but then they don't really have anyone that's driving them to a mission problem to get that mission technology fit or they're just not motivated in that entrepreneurial spirit themselves. And then on the requirements side, you might have a problem, but then you always run into someone else that's higher up, that's in the acquisition staff, that's going to take it over from you, then you can't really run with it. So it's interesting that you were saying that entrepreneurship just can't really happen in these um, self-sabotaging systems. But you've talked a little bit about you know these concepts of the innovation pipeline and innovation doctrine. Can you just introduce what those things are and then how would you think about bringing that to national security so that you can start bringing up entrepreneurship from within these large organizations? You know, I, I think that there is a, a burning demand for what I would call an academic national security entrepreneurship program. At some university, someplace is going to create a graduate degree that does that, that makes entrepreneurship something like hacking for defense on steroids as a capstone event for somebody's academic career. And they're going to leave that and go back into public service as a public servant entrepreneur. And hopefully we'll breed thousands of these over the next several years. You know, that was you know, part of the goal with Hacking for Defense was to take bright young men and women in graduate programs and infuse them with this idea to get involved in the government and get involved in solving the pain points that, that our folks in the military have. And in some cases, actually 
join the government and work on these things for a period of time. As you step back out of that, and now having looked at you know, hacking for defense for five years and looked at the enterprise level efforts that my company you know, is focused on inside the government, you can see a clear desire or a need for an operating system that allows lots of different innovation activities and methodologies and tools to be bolted together in order to ensure that innovation flows from the source until it's actually scaled and delivered as a solution across the services. Just like whether it's Chrome or was MS-DOS or something else, you know, every computer system has an operating system that allows you to build programs and apps and and other things and load it and, and harmonizes the way data moves back and forth. That's missing in most innovation applications within large organizations. There's nothing that harmonizes their activities with the rest of the organization, nor particularly in DOD, is there an operating system that harmonizes the efforts of DIU versus AppWorks versus uh, the Army Applications Lab versus uh, the SCO versus the lots of personal connections. And that's where work is done. But but every one of those is still a silo. And they still have some of the same issues about, you know, who's working on what. And, and if I'm running hackathons wrapped around AI, who's taking the data from that and the artifacts and moving it to the next stovepipe to get something done? And it's really about the handoffs between the activities where we're starting to fail. The activities run fine. But one activity isn't transitioned to the next activity, and that's where we're failing, and that's where the operating system comes in and becomes so important. From a military aspect and everything, and, and from a, I guess, an operating system is built on a common language, and from a military aspect, common language is propagated through doctrine. So if you really want to solve this, if you want to change the culture of large enterprise organizations, you need to have to go after the language wrapped around innovation, ensure that it's common, not just amongst the innovators, but across every department in that organization that ever has potential to touch it, whether it's the lawyers, the contractors, the finance people, or, you know, the secretary to the vice president or whatever. They need to understand what that language is and, and why it is the way it is. I know it's a long answer. But. Yeah, it's it's interesting to, I was just talking about this with a couple other guys today where it's kind of like our perception at each of these different places in the government of how we're contributing. And I think a lot of us have kind of an adversarial or different way of thinking about it, where a lot of the innovative guys are yelling at the functionals, but then the functionals say, oh, well, my profession has a long career you know, history. We're here for a reason. You don't appreciate us now, but when you get into this kind of process control or we're, we're assuring missing outcomes or we're going to hold you to a baseline or make sure that you're not price gouging. You know, they rationalize it within themselves on, on like how they are also contributing, even though the handoffs aren't there. So there's not this overarching view of how everything kind of comes together. I, I hear you there. I wanted to stick with hacking for defense. You said that they, the hacking for defense saw 60% of students staying with the sponsors after the program, 19% starting a company, um, that would be delivering to the government. And so can you go in a little bit into Hacking for Defense? How did you start that? Where do you see it going? But then also, 
you were talking about actually a broader, not just technical problems, but it sounds like on the business, a hacking for defense on the business side and what can be learned there. First, from a problems perspective, we're finding out that nowadays there are very few problems that are just pure tech problems. They're usually problems that involve tech, but also have a policy issue and a business process issue attached to them, which makes them very complex. And they're really kind of exciting when you start working on them. Hacking for defense and the methodology, you know, the merger of problem curation and lean methodology lends itself to a really deep understanding of who the true beneficiaries of the solution are. And a beneficiary's of the solution within the public space are rarely the people who buy it. And as soon as you start to make those distinctions, you realize that you're trying to establish desirability of a, of a solution based on the correct articulation of a problem as a baseline to getting to the buyers and convincing them that this is the right way to solve this problem along a, a viable pathway to actually deliver something you know that's worthwhile in a timely manner. That, that's a fairly complex process, but what Lean has done is provided a very disciplined roadmap for going through that process and gathering the data required to support the decisions you make about which minimum viable products you can and what hypothesis you actually validate and move forward. In the five years since we lost the, the first class at Stanford, we've also lost Hacking for Energy, Hacking for Local. We're teaching a Hacking for the Environment class focused on ocean technology at uh, UC Santa Cruz and Scripps in San Diego right now. We have expanded Hacking for Defense to Australia. The UK, literally, we announced the launch of the UK-based Common Mission Project, which is nonprofit that administers Hacking for Defense. And they're set the scale to seven universities in the UK this year, and I think they're on a pathway to well over 20 over the next several years. In the United States, uh, Hacking for Defense uh, will go to 40 universities in FY. 21 and it is set to go to 50. I suspect over the next several years we'll go past that. Um, the Department of Homeland Security is uh, committed to launching their own version of this. So we're excited to see that pilot take it off this year. And now we're, we're scratching at the concept of is hacking for defense a tool that could be applied as low as the high school level to attract more students to STEM based education, but also provide an opportunity for them to learn more about the military and the opportunities that they have in the future. You know, from a basic premise, um, hacking for defense is pushing, you know, it's punching well above its weight uh, and has become an incredible asset to the country. The way that I almost see it is an effort where the government used to do technology first and then it would filter to the commercial sector. And then over time, the commercial sector just became much bigger. And now we see the flow back from commercial to defense. It almost seems like hacking for defense by getting to young, smart people early, providing opportunities and allowing them to kind of tackle deep tech problems. It provides a new generation of entrepreneurs and companies and ideas that kind of get the flow going back from defense and government incubated back to commercial. Do you kind of think of it that way a little bit? Sure. I, I think you know, hacking for defense is the classic. It takes a village to run the class. The students are motivated to take the class because it is the one class they take that allows them to use everything they've learned in the university, every contact they've made, and, and every theory they thought, and apply it against uh, working in a group 
to solve a real problem that affects real people that gives them real experience that leads to real jobs. And hacking for defense students are highly, highly sought after by the industrial partners that actually team up with us for hacking for defense. The universities as partners in this process see hacking for defense as uh, an opportunity to teach differently, to provide a flipped experiential base um, offering to the students that is more closely tied with the workplace that the students will eventually enter. The military, quite honestly, you know, they're there to get better market research into their problems and potential solutions. They're there to get potential solutions, but they're also looking for people. Um, and then finally, the industry folks, you know, for instance, Lockheed Martin's a, a big supporter of the, the Hacking for Defense program. Lockheed is, is looking for both market research and looking for new potential employees. You know, and these are the types of people they want to bring into their company for the future. The idea of learning entrepreneurship in a high-pressure academic setting provides a safe place for students, industry, venture capital, community members, everybody to get into the arena together. <laughs> and I, I say it this way, we shed some blood. Entrepreneurship is a hard, messy, emotional sport. And it really does take a, a mass of people to make it work. It's interesting that you know, at Hacking for Defense, you were saying no problem really survives contact with the team. So we often go through this really long requirements process in the Department of Defense, and then we throw that over. We try to fix it and then just, you know, press play, right? And everything should work itself out from from a nicely defined set of requirements. But it seems like what you're talk about in Hacking for Defense and what you've said elsewhere, you really get that back and forth. You're able to curate these problems in a, in a slightly different way where you're able to iterate, create minimally viable products, and then kind of learn from that process. And that seems a little bit different than the way that we do things in Department of Defense regularly. So it's nice to carve these things out. But you said, you know, you've seen over 700 projects, both at Hacking for Defense and at your company, BMNT. And you said only five survived in their original form without major pivots. That doesn't mean that they weren't successful or that they weren't disciplined even, right? Like some of these could have been very successful what they pivoted and they were able to do that minimum viable product, iterate, and then find the fit with the mission rather than presuming that right up front. But in the government, it seems like we often do the other way around, right? Where discipline means you fully preconceive the requirements, you have all the technical steps, the costs, that are fully defined, bake that into a baseline, and then you use that as a mechanism of control. So one of the things that we often see is, well, if you're pivoting your program a lot in the Department of Defense, it makes you look like a troublemaker or an oaf. You don't know what you're doing. You know, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how do you think about discipline in the innovation field when you're really working on minimal viable products, iterating, where you're not going to have this huge preconceived plan, but they're still disciplined. What does that discipline look like? I'll give you the, the academic example first, and, and then we're teaching hacking for defense at Stanford right now. And you know what I find is we have a nine-person teaching team with three TAs and, and six instructors for 32 students. And we're still working hard to help the students discipline their work. And it starts with, if the standard is you're going to create a series of hypotheses about a component of the problem or a component of the solution. And then you're going to create a series of minimum viable products in order to test your hypothesis in order to gather data 
that allows you to validate or invalidate those hypotheses and move the needle towards uh, a firm understanding of the problem and then a potential solution and a pathway. Um, the discipline starts when you look at people and say, your hypothesis sucks. I don't understand the gibberish you just wrote. To look at an MVP and say, weak product. I mean, you're you're pitching a solution at, at your interviewees, not giving them an MVP that they're going to give you feedback from. Or looking at, at a team and saying, that's great. You interviewed three people and you made a decision. Let me know when you get to 30. That takes discipline that's hard for a team to do to themselves. And, and we find that's true, um, not just in a hacking professional class, but the work BMT does with large government organizations. We spend a lot of time disciplining the process and ensuring that the data that's produced is actually real data that people can back up and actually use to make decisions. We spend a lot of time mapping that process of how is data captured, how is it generated, how are the analytics built, and then what are the decisions that people are making based on it. The art of the discipline, though, comes from a team of entrepreneurs being receptive to criticism without taking it personally, but looking at something and saying, what I need is brutally honest feedback about my performance in doing X, Y, or Z, and then being able to internalize that and improve what they're doing. That's what an entrepreneur does every single day in the face of um, potential clients, customers, their investors, and sometimes their own employees. That's real life. If we can create that kind of inflection in a group of students and the ancillary people working with them, we've just educated an entire group of people, made them experts on a particular problem, produced the world's best market research around that problem, and produced potential solutions to it, and a team that, that potentially can run with it, who speak a common language about that problem and are ready to move it forward. It's tough to do. And it is an exhaustive effort for people. And that's why entrepreneurship is hard. It's hard, hard, hard work. And it's not meant for everybody. Lots of people need to get that experience, though. Is some of the issue the the fact that you don't really have a clear button to push in the in the government? For example, when I think of an entrepreneur, usually they're a technical founder as well. Not always. But they're usually quite involved and can make decisions to pivot the project. But where in the government... A program manager is basically defending a plan, usually created by other people somewhere else. So how do you think about, you know, should the program manager have more flexibility to, is, is it really just a question of, you know, manager flexibility to take ownership? And then, you know, how do you become accountable for that ownership? How do you think about that? So I, I can, you know, I could speak for my own program managers because I have them. Or, you know, for instance, uh, the Defense Acquisition University has taught H4D at a, in a compressed cycle for a while. And the, no kidding, program managers, the future PMs that are going after on major systems are, are like ducks of water. And, and you have to understand is that it isn't just about solving the technical issues with, with a particular piece of hardware. As much as it is a mindset and a thought process that allows them to work through every blockage and issue their program will have, it teaches them to think differently about problem solving. And in fact, actively looking for problems to solve that will help their program run better. So from a business process application for somebody embedded in a major milestone-driven effort, it is still completely active. And if you could take in changes and change the system so that it was more friendly to higher frequency changes, then it's all the better at the end of the day. When we think about acquisition reform itself, we always see of that through a top-down mechanism where we're saying, 
okay, we're going to change these policies, we're going to change these regulations, and that's going to have an effect through through the workforce and how things get done. But you've outlined something that's more of like a bottom-up approach to kind of how to get innovation into large organizations. And I'm just going to briefly summarize it where you you might have something like a new software can automate a process that was manual. It frees up human capital. It demonstrates value to middle managers who have real work that needs to get done and they're already constrained and they see value being done. And with that extra resources, they can reinvest it and they trust you. You've earned their trust to go out and do new things and then continue that virtuous cycle of innovation. Um, So can you build on that characterization a little bit more or how would you push back on it? And do you think that's a viable method for changing the department itself rather than from the top down from the bottom up? I think it's both. And then both got to meet in the middle. The, in fact, when I made that comment, what I was really focused on the difficulty of building credibility for innovation teams that are inside these large organizations. And I've, I've done it everything from a large commercial organization that, quite frankly, was in a death pile. I mean, they were going to go bankrupt and, and they couldn't arrest the acceleration to the bottom to save their life because they were unwilling to do anything different. All the large organizations, they know the world is going to change and they know their people are going to die if they don't do something different. Um, and they're willing to try everything. So they try everything and don't stick to anything and can't figure out how to glue it all together. And the folks caught in the middle are the ones who are responsible for the day-to-day operations of the system. And they suffer from what we call innovation exhaustion. They've seen so many programs or activities or methodologies come, and there's a bunch of energy and stuff happens, but it doesn't it doesn't impact the workflow. It's always for something else and someplace else, and they never see the benefit of it. And so they look at it and say, you know, quite frankly, I've got the average division head in an intelligence organization. Let's say they have 100 people working for them. And they're responsible for churning out X number of of intelligent products every day. On any given day, they're actually only manned at about 90% because the loss isn't hiring. And then of that 90%, only 75% are present for duty because some of them are sick, in training, on leave, whatever else. So already, they only have 75% of the workforce, but they still have 100% of the requirements they have to fill. Now, the innovation team shows up and says, hey, we want to borrow some bodies for a week and we're going to put them through this high-speed training, and it'll be great, and they'll come up with lots of ideas. And the innovation team does that, and then they go back to their cells and look at the division. We've got these great ideas and things we're going to do. And they say, that's great, but we're 150% overtasked, and, and by the way, all these things are late, so you guys need to get back to work. The other way to approach that, though, is to say, listen, I've got this great methodology for innovating and changing, asking the division chiefs and those folks, what's their biggest pain point right now to get them work done? And then focusing on solving something for them that saves them time or human capital so that they can free up people to be more um, more willing to participate. The other benefit of doing that, though, is it also starts to create this common language so that the middle management folks who control all the bodies and resources start to understand when you say, I'm running a sprint, what that means to them three months from now in terms of what they're willing to give up or something else. And, you know, I think it's not one or the other. It's not top-down versus bottom-up. They're both absolutely necessary. Somebody has to be a great steward of the discussion in the middle and look for opportunities for alignment to show people what right looks like and what the benefit is doing and make sure you capture that 
so that actually start to scale within the organization. Let's take it back to say the absence of dyed and blue entrepreneurs who are focused on the business processes and how work really gets done inside a framework. Their job is to monitor the framework and the innovation pipeline. The absence of those type of people is what's crushing most organizations and their inability to actually innovate. If you had to venture a guess, what percentage of the, the processes today that we see in the government bureaucracy do you think could largely be automated through software? So if we got into this virtuous cycle where we were able to carve out some time, they were able to deliver a product, save more time, and use that continually to keep putting out new applications, do you think we could probably automate, you know, like 50%? You know, what, what do you, how much do you think we could save there on the process and then we could funnel that back into potentially products or other improved processes? I, I think you have to be really sharp about finding where there are places where people are doing repetitive mundane tasks. And I say mundane, it's not that they're not important. It, it's that you could train a computer or an algorithm to perform that task for a human that frees up the human to focus on the things that only a human brain can manage. That's like judgment. And to give you an example, we helped AFWorks we essentially rewrote the code for one of our software programs and turned it into a collider bot. It essentially helped people find, I have a problem I'm trying to solve on a big campus. I got all these companies here. Who the hell do I talk to? Well, the collider bot ingested all the data from the companies and all the problems. And you sit down and said, hi, my name is Pete and I'm focused on this type of problem. And it would say, nice to meet you. Here are 10 companies you need to go see. And the more that bot was used, the better it got at delivering really valid responses to them. We recently have rewritten that thing to support COVID-19 responses. As what we found is that, you know, on the upside, the men and women in America are stepping forward with all kinds of ideas and willingness to help them do things. You know, unfortunately, if, if you're the person responsible for actually uh, deciding which of the 5,000 things that were sent to you, you're going to move forward with. You don't even have time to assess the 5,000, much less determine which one's best. So we wrote, we wrote that bot again to help automate that system of, I'm working on this problem and I've got these 5,000 responses. Let me narrow that down to the top 50 that are most relevant to what I'm doing. Those types of changes are met with a lot of enthusiasm because it saves time that people then put into doing a better analysis of the best options they have and making better decisions, not just sifting through lots of paperwork and other things. So I, I think that the use case of saving people that kind of time so they could focus on something more important uh, has played out in almost every organization we've worked in over and over and over again. You at BMNT have kind of been on the ground floor of a lot of this technology transition and engagement with uh, non-traditionals that the government has been doing in the past few years. And, you know, from at least my perspective, it seems that it's still an open question as to how many of these small companies getting $50,000, $1 million contracts are really going to transition into programs of record, larger scales, get people excited, and, you know, really transition the best and, and change the department. So I would just like to ask you, since you're kind of, again, on the ground floor of this, do you think there's enough transitions going up to keep enthusiasm high? Or do you think the government's kind of risking losing a generation of these startups and entrepreneurs to disillusionment? I'm going to give you two answers to that. You know, I'll give you the, the innovation pipeline kind of answer and to realize AppWorks and DIU and, and some of these organizations have done a great job of opening up at the aperture to letting the sourcing 
more potential companies to come in and work on DOD problems. Obviously, BMT is heavily invested in helping articulate those problems for those organizations and whatever else. But eventually, you have to get out of the R&D realm and off the OTA onto a FAR-based contract to scale something and deliver. That's important, but if I looked at it through you know, the eyes of an investor in Silicon Valley, they're saying, you know, if I'm going to scale one company in my portfolio to a billion dollars, I started, you know, essentially I started this 10 years ago. I invested half my money in 500 companies. And, and then three years later, I invested half of what was left in 30 companies. And then I invested all the thing after that in one or two companies. So the first is recognizing is that, yes, in order to come up with really good decisions about what transitions, you have to start with a boatload of things. And that's always been the issue is, you know, before it was, you know, requirements driven process is decide what the requirement and decide what the tech is and, and shoot a golden BB. The other side says, discover what the best pairings between technology and problems there are, figure out which ones can be best incubated into an investable entity, and then invest on scaling those. It's a different value proposition for how you approach selling the problem that, that one side versus the other looks at. That said, while folks like AppWorks have done a great job, and the Air Force in particular, and the Navy, are changing the way SBIR is run, and they're targeting the issues with SBIR and that environment, the very real valley of death between R&D program and a full-blown programmer record and a far-based, scalable commercial contract is still there. And there's still a lot of work that's got to be done to get to that point. I think that a group of investors that, that we work with, we're part of the Defense Investors Network, recently had an article in Defense One, I think it was, where they talk about the need for the government to write commercial contracts to companies to do work, not necessarily talk about it being investors. There are plenty of venture capital folks with plenty of money out there, but what they need is they need commercial contracts to companies to do work. And that's the very pointed target at the all this R&D stuff is interesting, but until you write a company of five or 10 million, three-year, three year con- a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract to deliver a product, you're not going to have as much of an impact on the psyche of the investors who are looking at that company as a commercial entity. Because on the commercial side, that's exactly what they're doing. Build a product, sell the product, get into the marketplace. And defense folks still haven't quite fixed that, that transition process. Do you have any uh, recommendations that would make it easier potentially on the government side to to start giving some more sizable contracts? Or is it just that funds are constrained, they're already destined to go to other places, there's just not that many dollars really available to kind of do these new things? And I think the the conversation I have with you know many of our clients who are trying to sort this out is that they're going to have to make bigger decisions on their efforts you know, for instance, it's not going to be spray $150,000 contracts out. Eventually, they need to write $500 million contracts. And they need to look at where they start by sourcing things and the problems and ensuring the problems they're working on have been fully vetted and are feasible and have a bead line that leads to a program or record someplace. And then they just need to start building those teams that eventually help them deploy larger sums of dollars to buy products that will help make those better companies. Right now, you know, unless you're a prime, that's really hard. That's what the primes do for business. And, and the primes have a role to play here. So I'm not anti-prime. I, I think the, the primes have a huge role to play in this. In some cases, they have to do it themselves. But we still have that issue of 
if I'm going to grow and scale a company that has technology that's key to the U.S. government, I need to sell a product, not just do repetitive small R&D projects. So a team of folks have really got to start looking at this transition part as hard as they've looked at the first part of it. You know, we talked about this recently, but it seems that the government is just geared for these large lead systems integrator contracts where, you know, I have a large program. It's going to be multi-billion dollars over years. We get everyone involved to go to define it and then line up the money. And then we usually put out like, you know, one big old SDD contract, systems development and design contract. And then we expect to go into some LRIP contracts, but we kind of think about it in like kind of like one of those one big go, This the lead systems integrator kind of has all the tasks partitioned in, in his own proposal. And you said you were dealing with contractors. You said, quote, ultimately the outsized expectations baked into our contract language created adversarial relationships with the very teams we were desperate to convince to work with us, end quote. So how much of the government should be looking for these partition contracts, right? Breaking up programs into smaller units that are separately contracted. And then you can kind of deal with contractors, not, you know, not take a Lockheed billion dollar contract structure and then like put that onto um, a small startup. How do you think about that partitioning of contracts, partitioning of programs, and like the government actually would be taking a bigger role in in that distribution? And one of the things that that we're looking at now and have for a while, it's one of those things you intuitively know, but you don't have the data to back it up. If you look at the innovation pipeline and the five stages, you know, beginning with sourcing, curation, discovery, incubation, and transition, each of those has um, a higher degree of risk of success versus the things that come in versus go out. So for instance, at the front end of the pipeline is sourcing things. You're really looking for contracts that just allow you to get people to work with one another without really having to specify a technical outcome. The outcome I'm looking for is I'm just trying to see the loose connections between problems and technical people and ideas that start to form a clump that I can move across and actually curate into an investable activity. So the type of contract I write to operate sourcing type activities is radically different than what I write to transition a scaling product into the force. People keep trying to write the same flipping contract style for the entire pipeline. And, and it's the, I think the biggest failure is, is I'm just going to write time and material contracts for everything. But that doesn't work when you're looking for the best talent you can find working on a nebulous solution or a nebulous problem that, that, quite frankly, doesn't have a solution yet. But at the far end of the spectrum, when you know exactly what the requirement is, the number of units you're producing, the timeline and everything else, that kind of contract may make sense. But you know, for any organization trying to apply an innovation pipeline framework to the organization, has to be willing to look at and say, from a personnel standpoint, how do I move people between stages? From a contracting standpoint, what types of contracts do I write that enable me to transition the value from one stage to the next and drive value at the, the far end? And then finally, how do we finance that? What pot of money is it coming from? What type of money? You really have to think through the entire ontology of the support network. And then before that, you have to look at what data is being moved that creates an analytic product that leads to a decision. Who's making the decision? in a timely fashion to do what? You really have to be able to step back and look at the entire system that way. And you find that everything is different from one end of the pipeline to the other. 
Yeah, I wanted to get further into the innovation pipeline and ask you about your relationship with Steve Blank and your melding of minds. But we're coming up on, on the end of the hour here, and I wanted to get to coronavirus. And you've provided some advice for leaders facing coronavirus, COVID-19. And Steve Blank has actually written some good articles as well that you were referencing. Can you just uh, talk a little bit about that and then provide anything else you'd like to end on? Yeah, I think, you know, in fact, I, I did another podcast yesterday with somebody who was um, focused on, you know, what do you got to think about when you reopen your business? And what I will tell everybody is your business is about people. It is it is first about your customers, um, but also equally about your employees. So quite frankly, if your employees don't trust you uh, and you don't have their best interest in amount, you don't have a business. At the same time, you have to understand the finances of your business cold and be able to decide when it's in your best interest to open versus not open and determine whether you have the legs or the resiliency to withstand a resurgence of COVID later. And I think for a lot of the businesses that are opening right now, is they were hurt and hurt badly by the closure. They're going to scramble to get back to a certain point. And if there's a resurgence and they have to close again, they'll die right and left because there's just no gas left in the tank for the owners and for the employees to, to go through another round of this. So I, I think for any employee, employer out there being absolutely transparent about their expectations for opening the business, the financial stability of the business, and what the business is going to do to protect the health of their workers comes first in the conversation. And after that, you can talk about, you know, now how we're going to get our customers back. And um, part two of that is I, I think the employees in a company know the customers better than anybody in the world. And getting their input and advice and thought on what the business needs to look at to survive in the near post-COVID environment versus far post is probably the first best, fastest place you're going to get new ideas for what you might want to, um, for how you might want to transition your business to fit the new normal. I just wanted to ask real quick, do you think this episode with COVID-19, do you think commercial companies are learning a little bit that the government might actually be a good or reliable hedge in times of emergency? Because the government has been doing all it can to assure cash flow to, to its companies. You know, Do you think other commercial companies are looking at that and saying, oh, well, that could be an interesting reason to get into government? I would say the arrow is pointing up. I can't say that it's stable. And I'll say it's improved. The the thought that the government can be a, a good partner to commercial companies, particularly in the R and D arena and in places where non diluted capital is important to small growing companies, I, I think that that's improved colossally. The one that's not, and the more difficult one, is the how do you scale the purchase of products from growing companies versus creating these big prime contracts that just block everything out. That's still the transition part is still uh, a very unfriendly environment for small, quickly growing companies. And that's tough. Pete Newell, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Hey, Eric, thanks again for the invite. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.